How many music degrees does it take to clap at the same time? How many degrees does it take? <laughs> Is it? Can Do you think, let me ask you this. Do you think if we took two, let's say, musicians with, say, bachelor's degrees for now, two random musicians <laughs> with bachelor's <laughs> degrees in music. Plebes. You put them <laughs> in... I guess uh, I'll leave. <laughs> you put them in, no, no, you, you you qualify for this one experiment. <laughs> you put them in two uh, separate rooms, and you count them off together. You go one, two, three, four, and they clap along or count along, whatever you want to say. And then you wait, and then you, but they can't hear each other. And then they get to like sixty, let's say. Mm-hmm. What are the odds that they land on sixty at the same time? In your opinion. D- do they know that they're doing this, or are you yes. hoping, like, okay... <laughs> yeah, this is not a psychological experiment. This is a technique, uh, uh, practice, I, something. I think if you, if you, if this is a challenge they know they're going into, and they're like, okay, I really have to focus and subdivide and everything, like, I think, I think a lot of people could do it. You think a majority of, like, a, a pair of bachelor degree trained musicians would be able to do it? You're... You're saying like finished with their degree, right? Like we're not saying yeah, like yeah. they just got to college. They, they got I, the I could not have done anything like that on day one. But right, no, yeah, but I, have I think, the bachelors. Yeah, I think if they've if they've done the, their studies and they they are professionally trained, like they can, they they could probably do that. It's interesting. Do you agree, Tony? So here's the thing about latency. <laughs> um, it takes a very small amount of latency compounded over a period of time to result in a lot of lag. And if these people actually can't hear each other, if each if, if the if their subdivisions in their minds are say 10 milliseconds off, mm. how many seconds is that going to take to add up to being like a half a second off or or a quarter of a second off? Like I think uh I, I think you can get to that point really quickly. And I think that's exactly the reason why we can't like clap together at the same time <laughs> over Discord or or sing over Discord and doing things that we want to do because um, you know, it, it all depends on what your sample rate. And if you're clapping at like, you know, like a, a steady rhythm that's not that fast, I guess that sample rate's pretty low. So maybe it won't be that much of a problem. But when musicians are working together in the same space, there's an incredible amount of calibrating that's always happening when you're listening to each other, which is which is why listening when making music is so important. So so no, I don't think that they would be together no matter how good they were, unless unless they had something closer to like what I've heard described as like quote perfect rhythm, which is where you can just pull tempos out of the air kind right. of the way that people with absolute pitch can pull. I've, hon- out of the air. I've honestly never heard that term before. Um, I understand the concept, but for clarity, you understand my example wasn't people over the internet. You're talking about latency as far as like people making like this, even the slightest human error expands the uh, distance between the rhythms over time. Right. Not over the internet, even just people. No, no. Well, they can't hear each other, right? That's the thought right. experiment. Yeah. Mm, so okay. it's just it's compounded over time yeah. because they can't recalibrate to each other. Yeah. And I'm saying that this is a related this is a related concept to the internet thing. Yeah. It's like a yep, yep, yeah. I wasn't thinking they were in total isolation when you said we just put them in different rooms. I assumed like you could still kind of hear a little bit. 
No, come on. What do I have to say that out loud? No, they, they separate them. They can't hear each other. Okay, so no they're in cheating. Like different... You're not allowed so, to cheat in this example. So Sorry, they're in like I should have said that. Buildings or like like they, yeah, they genuinely sure. can't hear each other at all. Okay. Yeah, genuinely can't hear each other at all. Okay, I was thinking like you know, there's an open door and I'm on one side of the wall and you're on the other side <laughs> of the wall. Like a cup to the wall. It's like oh, I can. Well, no, if the door is open, I can still hear the other person. <laughs> oh, oh God. What's the point to be saying would... put them in two separate rooms then if that was part of the example? Like, why bother? That would not be a very well-controlled experiment. Right. Oh, God. Useless. Anyway, that was just a thought that I had because I agree with you, Tony. I've heard, I've heard people say about musicians that they could do this thing and without having actually ever tried it before. I don't think my own rhythm's very good. I don't think my rhythm's good enough. I, I don't want to be an experimentee in this <laughs> example. Uh, I also really just don't think anyone could do this uh, reliably. I think that's like madness. For And Tony, I think you explained the reason perfectly. I would have just said it's impossible and left it at that. But I think your explanation for the reason why, like exactly, like you make one error, you just, there's no way. I, I, don't, I don't see it. I can't see it. See, now I'm having trouble imagining how this would work because if the, if the two people can't hear each other, how does one person count them off at the same time? Okay. Because they have to be in a place where... So you have sounds (laughs) traveling a certain distance, and you have a guy in the middle who can hear both of them, but the two guys are far apart enough that they can't hear each other. And that guy in the middle will be able to hear. They'd have to be really far. It's perfect. They measured everything. Oh my god. See, this is why I want to go down this road. Yes. (laughs) Because if you want to go down this road, it's not about distance, about isolation. I assume these people were in sound isolation chambers. Yeah, sure. And see, I didn't because you said that one person was counting them both off simultaneously. So if they if both people can hear that one person counting, they have to be able to hear each other. So so Dan, there's this thing called headphones. (laughs) Yeah. And these things called PA systems. No, no, no. He can talk to people. He doesn't understand that. (laughs) Dan, this is what you understand. So there's a Warlock (laughs) with two human barbarians, and the warlock is using magic to communicate telepathically with both of them at the same time. Because as soon as you add PA systems and stuff, now we're talking about electronics, in which case latency is a very real thing. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so we're talking about instantaneous thought transfer. <laughs> from 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 a single source, both parties would have an equivalent amount of latency. So the the uh, the latency would be um negated. Yeah. Mm. Instantaneous okay. thought because transfer. They just exactly. they just have to be in sync with each other. They don't have to be in sync with the person who counts off. Got they just it. have to be in sync with each other. Okay. I can get behind that. My my entire thought process on this has changed now, though. So I'm I'm gonna side more with Tony and say that this is not gonna work. <laughs> nice. All right. Fine. So, right. so 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 that all being said, uh, <laughs> I I am totally on the side of this is not gonna work. However, there are people that do frame perfect speed runs. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> so those people must have incredible internal rhythm. <laughs> so frame well frame perfect is interesting because. Frames also last a certain amount of time. There's like an amount of uh, room for error, actually, you have in that example. Whereas in the uh, example with two musicians in isolated spaces, uh, you they have to be like literally perfect because the game can't make up for any error. Any error is now part of your sample. Whereas in a game, there's a small amount of error within a single frame that it'll still put it in that frame and count frames normally. It's subdividing the time 
in small in a small number of segments instead of infinite numbers of segments the other aspect of that too is that games don't happen in isolation right like you have visuals to help you cue things and you you probably have music going on in the background whereas if you're just two people standing in a different room you know you all you have is your internal clock that's which is which is failable in 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 a way that like a pre-programmed video game likely isn't yeah that's a good point. right in a sense you're the speedrunner who's playing the game is taking visual and audio cues from the game almost as if, you know, somebody in an ensemble is taking cues from the other people or following right. a conductor. Or it's more like a metronome, actually, because it's a machine. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, yeah, frame-perfect speedruns, unimpressive. Unimpressive. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, 10? <laughs> That's a good example. Yeah. Man, how are we going to start on a topic? <laughs> I mean, it's, we didn't speedrun anything this week. I can't get Dungeons and Dragons out of my head. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, it's, it's a big problem. It's a real big problem. I've won, <laughs> <laughs> and we never see Dan again. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> He's accomplished his super objective. That's it. He can stop <laughs> doing the show. Right. And now Dan dies happy. That's the end. That's of the it. end of the story. Thank you for joining us on Pixel Noise. Who do you want to raid? <laughs> To clarify, we're all cool talking about uh, our personal D and D adventure. So yeah, I mean we've we've been secretly playing D and D. We've been <laughs> we've secretly been secret. It has been a secret. I I I wanted to do it sort of as an experiment because it's completely not stream related, which is weird because it's a game that the three of us are related to, and Pixel Noise has nothing to do with it, which is kind of <laughs> weird. But yeah, we've we've only done two sessions and we skipped a week we plan on doing it every week and i'm i've i've got a problem man i want (laughs) to i need to hold myself back um i've already ordered like a dice tower which is a problem yes and (laughs) the thing that i need to not order next which i really want to it's a lot cheaper but i want to get like a a three ring binder with um card sleeves like a three Mm -hmm. by three card sleeves so i can take notes on index cards and slide it in and out like if i have spells that i need (laughs) to prepare i can just take them out and put them in my prepared spell slot from the spells section of the binder and that's and i can take notes on like names and i can take them out fill in more information put them back in this is my plan for my D &D journal that's that's interesting (laughs) i I like that a lot and alex i mean i can tell when we're playing how much you think about D. oh no <laughs> i mean i can on i can and I, t- I think i told you this like while we were playing but i can honestly say that i have never played with anybody dm player including myself anybody who has fleshed out their backstory as much as you have oh my gosh <laughs> like it's it's honestly really impressive well thank uh, God. like it's 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 really cool like all the stuff you've come up with and like it, it really feels like you like this character is a real person Ooh, ooh, that oh that hits home that's that's a deep <laughs> cut thank you that's too kind of you uh i'm actually gonna pass the attention away from me and i'm gonna pass it to tony <laughs> for a second who i think all right i don't have you heard of this movie called inception so the idea of Inception is that you can plant an idea in someone's head. And Tony planted an idea in my head a while back uh, when he said the words, uh, something I'm pe- going to paraphrase, but Tony, you told me that I uh, am, quote, very good, unquote, at coming up with names. And this and this comes up a lot when you play video games, like name your character and you have to do all this stuff. And I, I take a very y- yes and approach 
to names. Uh, I also take a, a pen to blank paper approach where if I am confronted with this question and I have to come up with a name out of nowhere, I'll try and come up with an idea. And if it's not very good or not very hashed out, well, let me just put it down on paper. Like it's, let's say the name I came up with is Chernobyl. Well, okay. It's not a great name, but I'll start by putting down C and then maybe I'll from that kind of piece something. Oh, oh maybe Chern. Oh, C. Oh, maybe C L. Oh, okay. Maybe this is okay. Cleed Cletus. That's a great name for a character. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and, and that's like the process that I use. And I've thought, and clearly, 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 uh, I've been thinking about that process actively. I like thinking about creative processes actively. And I'm taking a similar approach to uh, this character building. Uh, I actually had a brief but interesting conversation with uh, Paradigm Shift, who is the DM uh, for our little campaign that we're doing. Uh, What's the name of it? We're doing a module, right? What's the Lost Minds of Fendelver. The Lost Minds of Fandelver. Yeah. I, I do want to add something on the previous point. Oh, please do. Yeah. I'm going to I'm, I'm I'm <laughs> go for hours um, if you let me. <laughs> so 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 Dan opened up by saying, and he's expressed this before, that um, you know, it's it's coming through very clearly how much thought you put into the character. And um I've I think that my challenge is that I think I've put just as much thought into my character, and it's not about like how much thought you put into the character, but how clearly you can communicate those ideas. Mm. And I think that my challenge is that I've put a lot of thought into my character and into my background, but I haven't found opportunities to communicate those ideas yet. And so it's not yet evidence right. that I have all this stuff that I'm working with, but I, I do have a lot that I'm working with. I, <laughs> I, I want to follow that up by saying I am waiting for the shoe to drop because you... Your character has a name. I don't currently believe the name we're calling you is the name on your character sheet. Because you <laughs> introduced your name with the exact quote, my name is music. That's right. And I'm waiting for that shoe to drop. It's like his name isn't the word music. His name is a song or some shit like that. That's what I'm waiting. God damn it. Anyway, that's what I'm waiting for. That's what, so so uh, that's an interesting point and I've been listening to D&D campaigns um like three different campaigns honestly and kind of hearing how other people are expressing themselves and the ways you know word pictures can be painted uh, I I have a lot of sources of inspiration for that um and actually the thing that I want to work on next is uh speaking more in character I realized in our last session that I am dictating a lot of my actions as if I were a DM or something instead mm-hmm. of just, you know, embodying words and actions in my character. Yeah, I'm thinking about that too. It's hard. I don't know why I struggle with that even. It's like it doesn't click for me, but uh, I've watched other campaigns where people are doing that and i just like, yeah, I got to do that more. I got to just, you know, own it. Got to lean into it. Yeah, my big struggle is I, I come into it with a whole bunch of ideas and then I feel like in every campaign I play, a lot of those ideas sort of like fall away and I wind up just mm. playing a version of myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like it's it's tiring keeping that up, for me at least. Um, yep. And it's, you know, it's an acting challenge. And, you know, and as, as we've spoken about on the on the show before is like when I play games, I'm not I'm not I, I want to relax. I want to have fun. Like I'm not I'm not trying to like challenge myself in a theatrical sense. 
Um, which is not to say I don't want to. I, I just have to figure out a way to do that. And, you know, like I, I have these ideas, but I think similar to Tony, although maybe in a different way, I, I struggle to get them across. Mm-hmm. Um, and inevitably, I feel like I'm like, you know what? I'm not getting these ideas across, so I'm just going to like not get them across and I'm going to just sort of play my play a version of myself. I think that maybe what this is because the other thing that I want to disclaim also is that we're uh you know we're we're doing this remotely all of us are doing this over yeah. video chat and I think there's at least an element even if it's not a majority element there's an element of this that's I think acting is harder when you're trying to do mm. it remotely over a video be. chat I think it's I I think that I'm finding it harder to actually like inhabit a character if I'm not actually in the you know in a space because like I can try to I can try to inhabit a character but I think it's a lot harder to try to inhabit a space when I'm not actually you know I don't really know how to articulate this but I don't I don't know if no, this that, resonates with either of you two I think that makes sense um you know it's we're we are talking to each other but that we don't have like the energy that we would normally give off to to, to like bounce off of i guess if that, i don't know if that's how i want to say it but like you know like you, like you feed off of other people's energy and like when you're when you're in a show or you're acting in some way like you you have other characters usually to feed off of um and while we do have that here it's it's different i mean it's it's just different it feels different yeah like i can get really um committed to a character i feel like especially even more when there when there are people around me that have the same if not more level of commitment into mm-hmm. what they're doing and that's and that's not to say that anyone here is not but just that like i think it's somehow harder to feel that yeah i think the i think the other thing too is unlike a show like a like if you're in a play or something like there's a lot more waiting around in dungeons and dragons so like even if you can get into the character it's really easy to fall out of it while you're waiting for five turns of combat to pass yeah yeah like oh, i i think about so that like there are some there are some theater pieces where like almost the it's like a small cast and the whole cast is on stage the whole time mm-hmm. and those pieces of theater i find very interesting because you have to like sustain this character over the course of like um you know over the course of the whole show because you're not yeah. just waiting like waiting backstage you're waiting on stage mm-hmm. and i feel like and i wonder like how much of this D experience is like if you're really going to commit like are you you know are you the actor who's like you know waiting in character on stage the whole time or do you mm-hmm. go in and out of it how fluidly can you get in and out of it like do you go out because you're waiting for a combat turn and then you mm-hmm. can't get back in like yeah, and th- this is really interesting all of a sudden. <laughs> and that's why these these shows like your like Critical Role, Adventure Zone, um, uh, Fantasy High, Dimension Twenty shows, like they're they're so impressive to me because that's what they're doing. They're sitting around a table, or I guess now they're probably on Zoom a little bit more. But like you know, they're they're sitting around a table and they're not all talking at the same time. I don't know if either of you have seen the episode one of Fantasy High. Um, if you haven't, I would go watch the first like half an hour of it, like not even the whole episode. It's just like a, a masterclass in acting in D and D because what they, with the way they open up the whole series is they go character by character around the table. to like, I think it's like six of them or something like that. And they just introduce them and like, they're, they're it's like a scene. So like, you know, they, they, it's not just like, hi, my name is, here's what I look like. It's like, 
we we see this character sitting in his room and he's doing this thing and you know his mom walks in or whatever like it's a whole scene and the the other characters are doing nothing during this time it's one person up at a time but they all do it seamlessly and they are able to just get into their characters as soon as it's their turn um i don't know for sure but it seems to me like they don't even know when their turn is coming up i think they're going by the by the dice um and it's just it's amazing like and then and then they do this like perfectly throughout the entire series is like you know they can just they're they're just in character like even and when they're waiting maybe they are maybe they're not but like when they're when it's their turn to say something like they are in character and that i think is what makes these shows so good and what what separates like the not as popular twitch streamers from like these massively popular dnd streams is like one acting abilities for sure like these are professional sure. comedians or actors or voice actors or whatever but like they ju- but two just the ability to stay in that character for hours on end yeah and i sort of want to do a reality check here uh really for listeners right now uh because i think this is widely applicable to a lot of things when you watch an episode one of a you know a D and D show, uh, you are not watching their first meeting in their characters mm-hmm. and in their roles. Like a lot of these uh, actors, they're they're working and they've put a lot of work in ahead of time. Um, I know for a fact, Critical Role in their first episode of their second campaign was not the first time they met their characters even though they did full character introductions to each other during that episode uh, everyone was already aware of everyone's character this was something that was already prepared uh it's possible that whole first episode was even rehearsed ahead of time uh with spoilers and everything like i don't know how much work necessarily went into it but it's it's easy it's it's so easy and it's part of the reason it's really cool uh, it's really easy to look up to these people and say, mm-hmm. God, I wish I could do that. And you can with the amount of effort. Uh, but that is part of what makes the experiences so enjoyable uh, as well. Yeah. And I think it's also really easy to look at them and be like, wow, I can't do that or I could never right. do that. And like, right. why bother? Um, which I think is, you know, an attitude that a, a lot of new players, including myself, have run into. And, yep. it, you know, it's it's important to remember that one, like I've mentioned, they're professional actors like this is what they do for a living. Um, and even if they don't do D&D for a living, they act for a living um, or they, they are on stage in some way or something like that. Um, but then, two for these larger shows like Critical Role, I don't know how much of their income it is, but it's just, I'm, I would assume it's a good chunk of their income. So like they make a y- ton of. Yeah. Money. <laughs> so so like, you know. If if on top of being a professional actor, you're making a lot of money playing D and D, it's pretty easy to find the time to put in right, to, exactly. to to flesh this character out and make sure that they're perfect and make sure the voice is just right. And you know, like if I was getting paid thousands of dollars to make sure that my character Theron was like amazing, I could I I could probably find a couple of days to sit down yeah, and work exactly, on a voice. Exactly. Like, <laughs> Exactly. And, and, you know, a couple of days is not even a lot of time, and you, but you could do a lot of work yeah. with that dedicated time. You could get really far. Um, I mean, I just, the, my problem is I sort of can't help myself because I wasn't interested in researching, like, lore of Dungeons & Dragons when we very first started. Mm-hmm. But it was the point where I started needing to answer certain questions of like, oh, okay, if my character's a half-orc, 
All right, well, where do half-orcs live? Mm-hmm. Do you know how interesting the story yeah. is of how af- of how af- like the, the story of how half orcs founds their land in the world of Dungeons and Dragons? I don't know the name of the continent. Fearin, I don't know. Uh, Faerun, uh, something like that. Faerun, Faerun, Faerun. There you go. I believe I could be wrong. Yes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the, the story, the backstory is when the when the gods of all the different species. Um, like they met to kind of cast lots for who would get what part of the land. Uh, the the god of the orcs, Grumsh, uh, was cheated out of every piece of land. All the other gods conspired to like get all the lands they wanted and left nothing for Grumsh and the orcs. So Grumsh, out of rage, stabbed the pl- like the earth, the pl- the ground with his spear and made a bunch of holes in caverns and said, that's where they're going to live. <laughs> like, that's the story. That's insane. But it's like, yeah. oh, okay, now I now I know where my character lives. How interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you want to dig into lore and history and stuff, there's just so much. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, Faerun is one place, too. Right, like, right. you know, we could talk about, like, uh, Barovia, where, where Curse of Strahd takes place, or, like, uh, the Underdark, or, like, there's all these different places, mm-hmm. um, and there's just, like, you know, decades of lore at this point, so, like, like every yeah. every little thing has been fleshed out, even if it's not been fleshed out officially, it's somebody's thought about it. Right, and you can take uh, events from that's pre-written like Mm -hmm. um like a war or a battle and you can play a story because the the, those events are on such a the 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 microscope is so far out that you can see the uh the timeline of events but you can take an adventure zoom way in on one of those battles and play that out the details of the battle are entirely up to you you know the mm-hmm. outcome is probably something you should work towards unless you want to do an alternate history uh, which you can do uh but mm-hmm. you can just like make up a character and say oh yeah that character existed in this battle at this time and fought these characters and you can play within that world even though a bunch of it's pre-written the details give you so much room and that's kind of uh genius honestly like to have that much framework. I'm actually doing something similar to that. Um, I don't know if anybody in my campaign is listening right now. If you're playing my Curse of Strahd campaign, stop. Go um, away. Because we, we haven't gotten to this point yet. <laughs> Go watch but it. um But uh there's a book that there's I'm gonna be vague too because I'm worried my wife in the next room can hear me. Um there's a book that they're supposed to find um that details some history uh about uh Strahd. Mm-hmm. And I through the help of of some incredible Reddit users, um, I have taken stolen some stuff from Reddit, reworked out of some of my own stuff. But this book is now an interactive history book, um, where we are going to spend sessions going through this book, but like where they get to be in the history of the book. It's going to be really cool. Oh sh! That's cool. Yeah, because I was like, that's boring. We could spend a minute reading the book, and I could be like, oh, here's what the book says, or this is more fun. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. I I I'm a little afraid because <laughs> I put almost 100 hours into Skyrim this year. Uh <laughs> playing with different Skyrim mods and finding just a bunch of new stuff and ways to play the game. Uh, it's May, by the way. 
but well, but that's the point, right? <laughs> like I haven't touched Skyrim uh in since maybe March. Like I I did all this research and I to put all the stuff into it and I was like, "I'm oh, done." I didn't it wasn't even a conscious decision. I just like my attention wandered el- I started playing Animal Crossing, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but my attention wandered elsewhere. So right now I kind of feel about D&D the way that I did about Skyrim, which is telling me like, "Oh, if I follow the same pattern, I'm not going to get to use this dice tower for very long." <laughs> and I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but I don't really know. Yeah, so I mean, I think the difference there is that D&D is a lot more vast than Skyrim is. Like you're not gonna <laughs> unless you decide. Yeah, I mean, you know, understatement of the century. Um, <laughs> but you know, unless you get bored of the game itself, like like the mechanics of the game, you're not gonna get bored of D and D, right? Like you're like if you get bored of this story, cool. Let's play a different story. Right. Like there, there's you can constantly change what you're doing. Yeah, and that's sort of why I have hope for it, but. Yeah, you know, it's gonna be something I keep an eye on over the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to see how you react to like the different types of modules that are out there, because I feel like the one we're yeah. playing right now is a pretty standard intro D and D. Like this is the one that when you go on the forums on Reddit and Facebook and whatnot, like they're like, "Where do I start?" and everybody's like, "This is one of the main ones that comes up." Yep. But I'd be, and it's a, pre- it's, it's the main one, one of the main ones for a reason, right? It's, it's a pretty standard D and D game. You know, you got some dungeons, you got some goblins, and got a pretty straightforward mission. Yep. Uh, but I'd be curious to see how you enjoy a more sandbox style version of D and D, um, something maybe a little more akin to Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Uh, like so, so I'm, I'm currently DMing Curse of Strahd, and it's, it's as open world as it gets basically like you you see castle ravenloft within minutes of starting and that's where strahd lives like you can you it's it's breath of the wild like you can walk up to strahd on session (laughs) one if you want to (laughs) you will get your butt handed to you but like that's awesome (laughs) if you want to do that you can um so i'd be curious to see how you like a game like that especially because in in at least in the version i'm doing of it where you know i'm running it the way i want to run it there's not a massive amount of of fighting uh there are definitely fights but it's a lot more role play heavy um which i feel like would be something you might enjoy i don't know i'd be interested too i'm also interested by this idea but i'm i'm glad to be playing the campaign that we're playing because uh it's been a very long time since i got involved in the campaign and i'm still relearning how all the mm-hmm. mechanics of the game work so like that's the, the the idea of a campaign like you just described sounds very interesting and exciting but uh i would definitely want to engage with that after i feel like totally basically just totally comfortable with the controls like i yeah. feel like i'm still learning the controls <laughs> no absolutely <laughs> for this game yeah i think that's that's exactly right like this is this is why uh, a lot of people actually are in the same boat I'm in, which is like they're, it's their first time DMing a, a campaign and they're DMing Curse of Strahd be, only because it was like just released fairly recently. So it's like the new oh, one that's okay. just out. So a lot of people are like, oh, I want to try that even if I've never DMed before. And because of the pandemic and stuff, a lot of people are having to DM for the first time because it's harder to find groups. So it's 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 just it's a lot like there's no way around it so so like i definitely fully agree that like you should start out with a a 
an easier adventure um one that is more on rails as they say like you know you have to follow a certain path um and it's it's been a real challenge as somebody who is brand new to dming figuring out how to run curse of Strahd because like you know there's we're we're in the second town in the game and we've been there for like four or five sessions now because it's just so huge and there's so much to do <laughs> like and and it's it's a lot it's stressful at points like like sometimes i'm like wow i really wish i i would have picked a, a an easier one to run but at the same time it's it's incredibly uh rewarding when all the pieces start coming together i'm definitely not uh keeping it a secret that my intention my long my long-term plan with D specifically is to dm a game that's absolutely my intention uh, I, uh genuine genuinely i was never even that interested in playing a character uh, i just kind of accept the fact that like i know basically nothing about dungeons and dragons <laughs> and imagine playing a character is a much better way to introduce myself to game mm-hmm. than dming a fucking campaign so i am definitely using i'm glad similarly i'm glad that we're using this module as an introductory as, as an introductory course uh so to speak to dungeons and dragons uh i probably am interested in playing a second character in a different campaign after this uh mm-hmm. probably a very a different kind of campaign as well just to continue to learn the ropes like i'm still freaking out about spell slots and hit dice and what all that actually means but mm-hmm. you know i i've i've talked to a couple of people about it and i'm starting to get my bearings but i would hate to be a dm that someone would like ask a question to just uh, logistically and not be able to answer it like if I'm going to run a campaign, I want it to be really uh, well done. And that would require a lot of advanced knowledge and preparation. Uh, but once I'm at that point, I'm very excited about what the yeah. possibilities are. As the DM, you're the game's engine. And yeah. you have to have a very thorough understanding of how the mechanics of the game work. Not just so that you can implement them, but that so you can manipulate them and do something interesting right. and creative with it right and so like the, the the paths to get to that point involves a lot of uh you know <laughs> uh at, at least the way i think about it, it involves a lot of practice and study and um, yeah this is kind of a step towards doing that yeah i mean i think the other way to think about dming too is like if you want to do it some I, I do agree you should play first but like I, I don't think you need this like encyclopedic knowledge like a lot of people think you do um sometimes it's fine to just jump in and you know like it's similar to teaching honestly like you know sometimes i'm in the classroom very rarely but it happens and somebody will ask a question you're like i'm not not sure um and i think that if you're with a good group you can do that as a dm too like they're like hey does this thing work that way and i'm like you know i don't know let me google it um and you know obviously it would be way better and better for pacing better for fun better all around if i could just be like yes it does no it doesn't and just know the answer but if you're in a situation where like you just really want to DM or like my situation, nobody else wants to DM <laughs> um, and you're kind of just stuck in that role. I, I don't like, I don't stress out about not knowing stuff. Um, and there are times where like I have to make stuff up on the fly and I do. And sometimes it's really bad and sometimes it's really good, but like, it's fine. <laughs> sure. Like I'm, I just try not to stress out that much about it. Cause at the end of the day, it is a game. Like I'm trying to have fun. 
I agree that you'll also learn by doing for sure. Uh, like the the first time you do it, it'll feel like jumping into the cold pool a little bit because, um, you know, I I do feel like because of so many possibilities, it's one of these things where you can prepare all you want, but there's you know like like going to the very first rehearsal for a show or going into your first day in the classroom or whatever <laughs> like there there's nothing that can totally prepare you for that so yeah there there is a point at which you do have to say all right i i have enough to get going and now i just have to jump in and keep learning yeah i do think you should have a really solid foundation on the basics though like you know you should know how spell slots work you should know how hit die work and things like that uh and like general combat rules and things like that but but as long as soon as you have like the basics down I think you're probably good to just jump in and try something. Um, I mean, you know, if it were I, if I lived in an ideal world, I would have played every single character, every single type of class at least once by now. Um, sure, sure. I would have, you know, I I would have read the the dungeon master's guide that I don't even own. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm not, and it's fine. And you know, am I am I the best DM? Not even close. But uh, you know, is it working? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a it's a hard balance to strike. Uh, in my opinion, because I, I've talked to many different people about ways that people will approach games and play games. I try to fall in the middle, but I have played board games with people who are interested in reading the rule book front to back, and then they want to decipher what the best strategy is, and they're going to sit and wait and they're going to tank they're going to really like sit there on their turn and think about like what the best option is and it's like guy just play come on we're all waiting for you mm -hmm. it's like but no that's important to them that's how they play games that's what's fun for them uh and then you have the antithesis of that which is people will do literally anything in a turn whether it's good or bad it's sort of it's the agent of chaos personality <laughs> um and i don't really like either of those extremes um, <laughs> I remember playing billiards in college. I have a weird relationship with billiards because w without sounding too arrogant, uh, I got really good at billiards very quickly. <laughs> uh, I never played before a freshman year of college and I had a job where I had to sit in a room for six hours and there was a billiards table in there. Um, I would have to, you know, just monitor everything, make sure everything, nothing gets stolen and, you know, checking people in as they come in. But usually no one came in because I worked Saturday morning at a college. No one's awake until my shift is over. So I just spent a lot of time in a room with a pool table uh, on the clock, so to speak. So I just taught myself how to play pool uh, six hours every week. Uh, and I got really good really quickly. I had to learn to uh uh to chill out when playing <laughs> against people because i would bring friends in and we would come during hours that i wasn't working and we just hang out and play billiards uh and there were points where i would just smoke my friends and like no one's having fun playing billiards <laughs> and i'm just like well i'm just playing i'm just it's not my fault but i i had to learn it's like i i don't have to throw games necessarily but, you know, I don't have to take my time and measure every shot. And it's like, I could take a loose shot and, you know, make it look like that. I just, I, I don't, I just don't have to try as hard. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to like how much effort you put in. Like, you know, I used to play tennis uh, throughout right, high right. school um, and, you know, I, I was, I was very good. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I would play with people who you know like i so for example i went to a summer camp and 
you know, we had the option, you had six periods a day in the summer camp, three of the periods you went to every single day. Those, those were like your, your main things mm. that you did. And then three were interchangeable. You could change them every morning. Um, and there were days where I went to tennis five of those periods. Um, and <laughs> I was just, I was super obsessed with it. I was very good. I just wanted to play at a high level. Um, and in the periods that were interchangeable, uh, you know, that's where you get the people who just want to try something. Um, right. and I found it very hard to play during those periods because I was just like, I want to, I want to play a good game. And yeah. these people have never seen a tennis racket before. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I had to figure out how to have fun in those situations and it wasn't easy. Yeah. I actually, I, my more direct metaphor would be, I also learned how to play table tennis. Uh, and I was friends with someone who was a pro table tennis player who taught me a bunch of cool stuff so i learned how to spike the ball on the opponent's side of the table <laughs> uh, i had to learn that if i'm going to play a casual game with friends you get a you get an opportunity every single shot to spike the ball on the opponent's table when people are playing casually and mm -hmm. you just don't do that you just volley right. you just hit it back nice and easy and you just go back and forth and you just have fun with it yeah see i wasn't good with that i i wound up playing with the the tennis coaches instead of the people who were yeah. like <laughs> um, yeah, no, because you was, know they were in the same boat right like this was a summer camp so the tennis coaches they were all like you know college kids who like played on their college mm -hmm. teams yep um and you know they were bored as hell dealing with a bunch of like high schoolers and younger who had no idea what they were doing so yep you know that when when you know when I got there and I wanted to actually like really hit, they were they were like, oh, we can play now, <laughs> and that's mm. sort of how I felt, and it sounds like how you were you were feeling. Um, yeah, and I th I think as to relate it back to Dungeons and Dragons, like you know, I think a lot of people will spend a lot of time um, like min maxing their characters, and like you know, s s if I'm a wizard, I'm gonna dump all my my as much uh i'm gonna raise my intelligence as much as possible right because that's my my casting stat um and if i'm a bard i'm gonna probably go into charisma and things like that or you know you could just roll for stats and do what you can with that and do what's cool in the story and you know not every move has to be optimal uh for me in D D, story should come before anything else um mm. because you know, as a DM, like, right, if my players are min-maxing, I'm just going to make the enemies harder. Mm -hmm. Like, you wasted your time. Like, <laughs> do some do something interesting. Don't, don't, don't do a whole, as, whole bunch of math and try and make a strong character. It's a self-correcting engine. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, uh, this, this whole conversation's uh, very interesting because I think it actually ties perfectly into something that we were talking about, like, uh, several episodes ago or something like that i don't remember but um you know it's still here in the notes can a game designer optimize for both player choice and players who feel compelled to play optimally and i, I find this so interesting because like in my mind i think i was um i was personally placing the responsibility of this on the player as opposed to on the game designer and i think that that's just like my point of view or like how I like to look at games because in my own mind, in my own perception, if I'm playing a game, I want to quote optimize as it were for having fun. And in my mind, that sometimes means you min max and that sometimes mean you play more casually. Like we were talking about, because sometimes 
you have to let go of some of these optimizations if you're going to have fun with a game. Or if you can't let go of that optimization, then you're just not going to have fun with the game. But And in my estimation, that's not the game's responsibility. That's the player's responsibility. I mean, that to me, that sounds like a personal issue. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to revisit that in the context of everything that was just said about like, you know, getting really good at something and then stepping back so that you can have fun with your friends. Like, I think this is a valuable skill, but I think it's definitely a skill on the part of the player. It's not the game designer's responsibility. Maybe I'm connecting things that shouldn't be no, connected no, no. or aren't there, but no, I, this I, is what I'm thinking. I, I totally think these are related. Uh, I do want to add quickly to what Dan was saying about, I, I realized I gave a metaphor without explaining the metaphor. Um, <laughs> the balance between, you know, having fun and optimizing that I was going for, and you mentioned min-maxing in D&D is like, you know, yeah, you want to win your fights but not at the expense of fun right uh, I, I was actually not even just min maxing your character stats but also you know if you're gonna build a character and a backstory and just all those decisions you make uh either as a character or a dm uh i think it's important to you know balance your own expectations even you don't need a full backstory to play D D. Uh, if you make up your backstory on the spot, you know, take good notes. That might be helpful, but you don't you don't need to do homework to play a game. I would never ask <laughs> as a DM. I would never ask that of my players, and I would love it if the players did it. it sort of makes my job easier and more interesting. But you know, we're again, we're all here to have fun, and if we're gonna just plow forward and see what happens, that's great too. We might even discover backstory you might not be able to figure out your backstory until you've spent a month with your character that's mm -hmm. extremely valid so that's actually that's another that's another context that i was also thinking about this you know really not really optimizing but putting effort into a game and learning its ins and outs versus just trying it and seeing what happens i'm gonna slightly disagree <laughs> oh here we um, go this is so, where it comes in <laughs> so i when I was preparing for Curse of Strahd, um, I did make my players do some homework. Okay. I made them... First off, their character sheets had to be done. That was a non-negotiable. And that includes, like, <laughs> backgrounds and tra uh, traits and, you know, uh, flaws. Like, all of this character stuff that sometimes people skip over. Um, like I wasn't worried about people not knowing about their AC or their weapons and whatnot. Like, that's fine. Like I had played with most of these people before, but I needed the backgrounds to be done. That, that was a non-negotiable for me. Um, and then I even took it a step further and I gave them a Google form to fill out. Uh, it was like short, it took like five minutes, but it asked them questions about their characters so I could just get more info about them. Uh, I didn't feel bad doing this at all because at the end of the day, I was prepping a campaign that is... 217 pages long mm -hmm. um and fleshing out this entire world and i'm like you know what you're gonna flesh out your characters a little bit um and <laughs> and i i also didn't feel bad doing it because it, yes it makes my job easier but it also i think makes it more fun for my players in the long run because now i can pull from these backstories and do interesting things with them um, so like for an example, 
one of the one of the things in Curse, Curse of Strahd that can happen is that characters can have uh, nightmares because of a, a certain thing um, uh, that they do, which I can't. I'm not going to say because yep, I don't want to give spoilers it. away. But there's there's something that can give them give them nightmares, and rather than you know giving them this generic oh ghosts scary, you wake up in a cold sweat. Um, now I can pull from their backgrounds and like, you know, my, one of my, uh, characters, uh, my, uh, paladin who escaped execution. Now his scary dream was that, uh, and he, uh, he, he, some, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact dream. It's not in front of me, but something along the lines of like, you know, a, a crown of thorns is being placed on their head and it actually goes below their head around their neck and they look up and they see it's their mother getting ready to hang them. Um, it's pretty good, and I'm like, it's pretty good. That's way cooler than anything I could have come up with if I didn't know that you escaped execution, like, th- and and so I think that that yeah, it's homework. Yeah, you know, it might not be what everybody wants to do, but I think it can be a much more rewarding experience. But that comes to knowing who you're playing with, like, right? Not every table wants that. Uh, that's that's what I wanted at my table, and I think my players, I hope, uh, like that as well. I, I do want to hear your guys' responses to my point before, though. I'm <laughs> just going to throw out there. Yeah, yeah, no. So, I, sorry, I, I got sidetracked. <laughs> uh, I'm going to... I I I have your question in mind, uh, don't worry. But uh, I want to say, Dan, I'm going to do you one better and say I don't disagree with anything you just said. Uh, first of all, you, you had your players off at the past. You gave them homework. You also prepared work yourself like mm-hmm. you kind of met them at that same level you gave them a google sheet of questions that you wrote i assume or prepare even uh, research yeah and prepare. put together yeah yeah um so all of a sudden you're not telling people here's a blank sheet of paper write a story like you have provided a framework which is an amount mm-hmm. of work so you are meeting them there which is exactly the right way to do that um putting effort into a thing is interesting because there it is definitely possible to do work poorly and do preparation poorly but my rule of thumb in general is you get out of the thing what you put into it so if you're going to put that extra effort into it it's going to pay off it's going to help you and depending on how good or efficient your work is that might vary but in general you know, if you prepare yourself for these things, you will gain something from that. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a cool. Now, this is a cool thing because I think I can tie this into your question, Tony, about <laughs> where the responsibility lies. So, like I just said, Dan, you gave, you made it a responsibility of your players to put in a little extra effort to have fun. Mm-hmm. But you also took up the mantle of responsibility by giving them the framework now D is uh strange <laughs> a bit because you have this i'm gonna say symbiotic relationship with your players an idea that i've heard that i really like from the point of view of a dm is you are telling a story with your players mm-hmm. and not preparation beforehand, but actively. The events that unfold are the events that unfold. And, you know, maybe the DM's the one that does the most work, but your players have just as much power 
over the events that unfold as you do, regardless of how much work you put into it. So you each have a shared responsibility. And I think it's important to acknowledge that responsibility and be be that let that be the crux of your decision making. If you have an idea, for example, if you have an idea where you want your players to go, you have to be able to abandon that, unfortunately, because if your mm-hmm. players don't want to go there, what are you going to do? Ruin their fun by forcing them to? You're going to make a trap hole appear in the ground and you go, well, <laughs> you're at the castle that I want you to go. Like, no, that's <laughs> not how it works. It's not what the game is about. Um, I do think it's interesting that a person who know maybe Dan, maybe you know more about this than I do. The history of D&D comes from a place of a uh, dungeon master versus party mm-hmm. situation. And it was like this antagonistic relationship on purpose. And the DM was something for the players to overcome. And the DM was literally creating more of like a puzzle or a challenge. And up the po- the popular thing now with Dungeons and Dragons is this uh, cooperative storytelling, this role playing uh, and working together. And a lot of responsibility falls on a DM. But it's interesting how we've evolved to the point where instead of challenging the players, you're communally you know, writing a novel, basically, which is I, I I won't go as far to give it a judgment call. How dare I say something's better or worse? Uh, but it's a cool it's a cool space to play in. It really is. Yeah, and I think that it has uh, really evolved in the way you say. Right, like it used to be us versus them. Now it's now it's all of us telling a story, and it's. I think that that's actually makes the DM's job a little bit easier because it it yeah. helps it helps the DM to come up with ideas that. Or, or it gives the DM ideas that they might not have been able to come up with on their own. Yeah. Um, you know, there are things that my players have done without going into specifics, but um, that have made me have to flesh out certain aspects of the world that I was not anticipating needing mm. to give details about. Sure. Um, to the point where I've had to create like handouts that I give to my players and things like that of like, <laughs> or like n- create interesting items that they find just because they were like, oh, this is something I want to hook onto. And I was like, wasn't expecting that, but okay. Uh, and you know, I had to make up entire session because, like, an entire session because, like, they just went left when I thought they were gonna go right. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting experience to have. As far as uh, Tony's question, you know, like, is it the the responsibility of the players or the game developer to 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 um what was it? it was to balance is that how you phrased it so what we literally have written here is can a game mm. designer optimize for both player choice and players who feel compelled to play optimally yeah so i think it's tough because i think if we're talking about D, that's a different question than if we're talking about you know it's definitely any different normal video game um i think if we're talking about a, a D, i think the game designers did a great job of that uh, I, I was trying to find this quote and I, I, I couldn't uh, uh, immediately, but um, there's a part in the player's handbook that basically says like, you know, these are the rules, but like they don't have to be um, and like, you, you know, right. the DM can do whatever they want, basically. Uh, colloquially, colloquially, I think that's known as the rule of cool. 
um mm-hmm. right like if it, if it's cool enough we can go ahead and do it even if it's not rules as written right. uh and so i think that that's that's great balance because it allows the people playing to balance the game in whatever way they need to uh and players can play optimally while the dm balances the game for that um and players can make whatever choices they want but um i think in an in like a programmed video game that like you, you know where you don't have a human being making choices for you um i think there's a you can do a lot i i don't know that it'll ever be perfect um because players are gonna want to make a bunch of choices and there's just no way to anticipate every single choice they're gonna make um and even if there was a way to anticipate every single choice the 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 time resources that would go into programming all of those choices and all the possible outcomes is astronomical um so they have to make that choice as well i think it's a lot easier to to actually i'm gonna not even say easier i don't know that game designers have to optimize for people who want to play optimally because optimally can mean whatever you want it to mean in a given context uh not whatever you want it to mean let me rephrase that optimally base will will mean different things in different contexts um so people will learn to play optimally with whatever they're playing um and you know game designers can play into that and and make you know interesting things happen if you do certain if you like jump at a certain pixel like alex was talking with celeste um but i think the the harder thing to do is player choice uh and i i don't in, in a programmed video game i don't see how uh you can optimize for both player choice and playing optimally without making some sacrifices i can respond to that by saying, because I, I rem- remembering the conversation we had, uh, the argument that I was making specifically was, um, there are can be, every, yeah, a- any game can be optimized, uh, but the question is, how much fun or how much effort has to go into these optimizations? Uh, in my opinion, I think Stardew Valley is a really terrible speedrunning game, <laughs> because to optimize that game, you got to play in the most boring way possible, which is you plant your seeds and then you just sleep a bunch of times in a row and then you wake up and your seeds are grown and then you sell it and then you plant more seeds and you go back to sleep. Like so much of the time of the speed run is spent uh, pressing A to go to sleep, waking up, pressing A to go to sleep and waking up. And that's like, that's awful experience, but that's what's optimal. Um, And there's a lot more interesting, uh, optimizations in other games uh like celeste you you can uh combine jumping with dashing to get more speed in different ways and you can clip through walls and the developers instead of even like cutting those out or not acknowledging it just made it easier to for people to pull off these things like instead of requiring you know a weird button combination to hold your controller differently it's like, oh, we'll just we'll open up a setting in the menu. It's like if you're gonna do this thing, uh, you can make it this button combination, or we're gonna remove this uh artifact from our design, which doesn't do anything anyway. And yeah, you can now clip through this wall uh without having to, you know, reinvent the wheel. Uh it's now just possible if you know about it and can time it, instead of also, you know, having to 
hold the controller weirdly or something like that. Uh, so you can just kind of make the barrier uh, to entry just more able and more interesting in these ways. Uh, and I think the question is how much responsibility is there for developers to make those decisions uh, if and when they come up? Right. Yeah, see, I had an idea, and then you started talking about Celeste, and then I was... <laughs> I took my brain into a totally different place that I'm not ready to respond to. Well, well, the Stardew Valley example for me, like, made it very, very apparent to me. Like, Stardew Valley was a game that I also got very invested in for a while, and I wanted to learn more, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to start memorizing information so I could start falling into patterns more easily and making de decisions faster with, because there's so much to look up in that game. And the thing that's re that was really disappointing to me was, Oh, I have all this knowledge now and there's all these different paths to take and all these different um, mechanics in the game. But it turns out speedrunning strategy is just using one mechanic, uh, planting seeds and then going to sleep a lot. And it's just like, damn. Right. Well, I guess I guess the Stardew thing for me is pretty simple. Like it like that just comes down to a semantic thing, like with my issue with the term optimal, because you know as as i understand optimal meaning like what's the i i guess i think of that word meaning like what's the best way to do something i'm speaking i i am speaking in the context of speed running right and that's what i'm that's what i was about to say that um you know you can this is the most efficient strategy for speed running it's just it's weird to me to use the word optimal for that because it's an incredibly suboptimal way to play the game i think mm -hmm. i would say um because you're not uh having a good experience but that's but that's not the goal so it's just like whatever the and that game that game is a particularly challenging example because uh because because the game doesn't have a defined endpoint you just have to you just have to pick one like there's several things you can pick to be a defined endpoint but uh the end quote unquote of that game is not very clear um there's just you know you just you just kind of pick a pick a point at a at a at which things are done. Yeah, I'm trying to... There was also just a lot of things that were said, and I just don't know what to respond to first. Like, going back to Dan's point um, about... Uh, like, I, I think I'm interested in that difference in how, you know, D&D &D is a game that provides a lot of choice, but it still can be played optimally because... I think there was something in there you said about like the 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 DM is is adjusting the the world and you have the rule of cool and you have you have this flexibility that you have with D&D &D that you don't have with software because things can be flexible when yeah. uh when 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 the people in the room feel like they should be. And so I guess the question there is like because of a lot of the inherent inflexibility of software, like, is this just a limitation of the fact that we're playing games in software as opposed to, uh, as opposed to using our imagination to play a game? Like, is that, you know, do we do we need that? Is the bar for player choice does it have to be that high for to to reconcile these things? So now I'm actually thinking of this a little bit differently after you said that, and I'm I'm. Ooh imagining play I'm, I'm imagining almost like a, a binary of like player choice on one end and optimal playing on the other end um and you know you can have shades in between because i'm I'm now thinking like in D D, how do you play optimally like if you have a good D dm 
who is adjusting the interactions and the encounters based on the players, how do you play optimally? If you if you if you have these amazing stats that you like really worked hard to make sure they fit your character really well and you took the right feats and you you did all these things and you have the greatest armor and the magical weapons cool but now your enemies are going to be smarter and they're going to throw more stuff at you like just because you you've put all this work in and you're playing quote-unquote optimally doesn't mean that you're going to have an easier time like in in like i would i would i would try and have the same level of difficulty for like a level nine party as i would a level one party it just means the enemies are going to be harder right yeah is it is it the case that because everything maybe that's just a better way of like phrasing what i was trying to say that like because everything scales is it just not even possible to optimize in the way that you could optimize for a video game or a board game that has um I don't want to say str- I guess like stricter rules or or um, yeah, or more th- or just like a lack of scaling because I think what's happening in D&D versus like a video game or a board game is like you know yeah you can have all this player choice and yeah you can even have more player choice than in those other things but you also have I guess what I'll call like game engine choice um where like you know in a video game you if you play the same game over and over again you know, you're going to encounter differences and, and things like that, some depending on the game. But like the general idea and the general story is going to be the same. Um, and because of that, developers have to they have to scale the encounters or scale whatever it is you're doing in a way that makes sense for the average player. They're they're like the the people going through this when they get to the end of the game. Here's about how powerful they're going to be. And it has to be a challenging encounter for that. So if you're somebody who, you know, playing through a game of Pokemon grinds and grinds and grinds and get through gets to the Elite Four at level 100, you're going to have a pretty easy time. Elite Four is not going to be too much of a challenge. Um, but that's not your average player. And, and I don't think that game developers can or should be responsible for balancing to that player. It's just because that's not who that's well, not most of who's playing. Let me ask you this. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Would Pokemon be a better game if the let's just say trainers in mm-hmm. Pokemon, not Wilds Pokemon, but let's say would Pokemon be a better game if the trainers, the trainer battles and their Pokemon scaled to your level? And I just I, I have to throw in a detail about this mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a little piece of history that. I don't know if you guys are aware of, and now I'm going to butcher telling this story because I nice. <laughs> I don't remember all the details, but there there's a particular game that made, I, I think it was like some, it was, a, it was a subsidiary studio of Warner Brothers. I think they recently talked about this on, on Playwatch Listen at some point, but like um, there was a particular game studio that made a game that had enemy scale and difficulty with the player like that. And they filed a patent on that mechanic. Wow. And now it's actually something that game developers stay away from. They don't do that out of fear of legal retribution. Wow, I hate so that. in <laughs> in games we in video games specifically, we have this other complicating factor that is literally causing developers to stay away from that mechanic. Uh, which is very frustrating. Well, if those people are listening, um, this is your official <laughs> Pixel Noise call-outs. You're jerks. Go for it. You should just stop. 
<laughs> so um, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, it's one of these like just funny stories in gaming history, like the why you can't have mini games during loading screens thing, because that was another thing that was <laughs> that was patented by a particular studio. Um, but uh, but I, I, you know, I'm interested in uh, Dan, if you want to answer Alex's question about like, let's say this story didn't exist. And let's say that, you know, Nintendo, yeah. this was something easily on the table. Would the game be better since you have more experience with so Pokemon than I do? I'm going to say no it wouldn't and i'm thinking about more than just pokemon right now i'm thinking about any mm-hmm. any game that has like fighting or battles in it um uh and in my mind i want some level of realism this is just what i appreciate in games not to say this is inherently right or wrong um what i would prefer uh and this would make for a terrible pokemon game so like nintendo don't do this um but like what i would prefer is some level of realism like where you know when i get to the first gym leader are you seriously telling me that this is a pokemon gym leader with like a level 20 pokemon come on like how are they a gym leader (laughs) so i i don't think it should scale to the player i think it should be a little more realistic like it's i i want to i want to get my butt handed to me at that first gym because i'm a 12 year old kid trying to get a gym badge (laughs) like right at its extremes it can almost break immersion right like if you if you encounter something that's like oh by the rules of this world as i understand it this is patently ridiculous yeah it almost becomes like rubber banding in racing games at that point like (laughs) yeah so i mean i think there's a way to do this i don't think it's reactive I i don't i don't want the game to react to the player so much i'm thinking about pokemon now because i think i'll get i'll go too off the deep end if i try and generalize this to all games but for pokemon i think one the realism would be better i think if it, if that was more of the case um it doesn't make any sense to me that you know the grass outside pallet town has like level two pokemon and you know the pokemon in the water on the other side of pallet town has like this crazy powerful water pokemon um just because you can't surf at the beginning um so i I would like to see a little more realism there in the wild pokemon a little bit more of a mix i get why they can't do that i i totally understand why this would make a terrible game uh but i'm just saying if i was i don't okay um (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no but i'm I'm just saying like if i was trying to reimagine it like if i was gonna hack a rom or something and create a new version of this uh this is the type of stuff i would want to see um but i do think there it could be interesting if maybe there was some scaling involved with a minimum level of difficulty uh, cause I wouldn't want to walk up to the elite four straight from pallet town and have it scale all the way down and be able to walk through. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. But I think, I think that could be interesting. Like, like, you know, elite four has to be minimum level, whatever it is, 60 say. Um, and you know, but if you walk up with a hundred, guess what? Now they have level one hundreds have fun. Um, because actually that would take out the, nece- the, 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 um, that would take out any need for grinding at all. Which I which I would appreciate. That's the worst part of the game. So careful saying too much, Dan, because if you spill too many secrets, we might be uh, losing our opportunity to patent this uh, genius <laughs> Pixel Noise brand's difficulty scaling idea. <laughs> because uh, a quick search on Google told me that uh, Sony this year and EA last year have separate patents on separate uh, enemy scaling formulas uh sony's uses ai ea's uses 
I don't know, arrogance. I have no idea. But they each have uh, patents he on He uses microtransactions. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't know the details of it. It doesn't look like either of the patents have gone through but i again i just i literally just did the research uh tell us more in the discord hey look there's a link in the show notes um and it's and and you can and you can scale it like skyrim has a scaling enemy that the system uh leveled enemies it's called or leveled npcs whatever term they use um all in all this is to say this idea adding it to your game i don't think it makes your game magically better uh we sort of in this conversation trailed off into ways to make pokemon better that i would broadly use the phrase immersive like it's amazing what you can do by uh uh just using the worlds that you created and building out of that and i'm gonna do a sick transition right now <laughs> into uh, this is exactly the thing that pisses me off uh, about the new Pokemon Snap game. There it is. Which is <laughs> honestly not that bad of a game, but like how, why, they just, they Nintendo just pulls stuff out of the air and says, oh, look at this thing that's existed in the world all along that we just discovered. I, I, it's just, it's so lame. It's so <laughs> boring and creative. Uh, but I played pokemon snap and new pokemon snap this week uh, i have a couple of thoughts about that but uh dan i know you played the new pokemon snap game <laughs> yeah um it's fine you know i don't i don't hate it i don't love it it's fine uh as a photographer i'm very much not a fan Ooh, now I, we're I, into it i, I want to hear are... this I mean, I'm sure you photographer you've... plays new pokemon snap reacts <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean Cause, cause you know, when I, when I'm doing professional photography, my, my number one priority is making sure my subject is dead smack in the center of the frame. That's what I do. Okay. Like that's just, you know, if you can, if, you know, for listeners who, who don't know about photography a lot, that's just terrible advice. You don't, you don't, you almost never want them dead in the center of the frame. <laughs> uh, it, 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 oh, let me, hold on. Let me cross out that note. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible photography advice. Um, and it, it goes to create an incredibly boring photo. Um, I've managed to not get furious about this by keeping, by continuously reminding myself that, uh, this is for scientific research in the game and I'm not necessarily trying to create <laughs> art. You have to um, justify it to yourself. <laughs> um, so, you know, from that lens, yeah. You know what? If I'm trying to document animals for scientific purposes, I'm I may want them in the center of the frame if all I want is a visual reference. Um, so fine. Oh my God. Filling my head with ideas, man. <laughs> um, and you know, every, you know, there, there are, I, I've, I've, I've come to make, uh, what might turn into like a drinking game or something, which is like guessing what the star level of the photo will be before the professor tells me. Um, because I'm almost always wrong, which pisses me off. <laughs> like I see, I see a photo and I'm like, that's a badass photo, four stars. And they're like, nope, one star, screw you. <laughs> uh, well, and then yeah. the same, but then the other way happens too. And I'm like, oh, you know what? This photo is garbage. Like you can barely see the Pokemon and they're like four stars. Amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you looking for? The stars aren't a ranking. It's, but it's based on the points, isn't it? The st the stars you get are a classification system. They do not rank the quality of the photo. They rank the event occurring 
uh, or the actions of the Pokemon in the photo. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very, it's it's very strange. A one that. star photo That's so is dumb. a Pokemon just chilling, hanging out, and that's very easy to get. A four star photo is the Pokemon doing something that they don't do very often, like I don't know, picking their nose, I guess, like whatever it may be. Like, whoa! I've, I've got... noticed that, and and I knew that was connected in some way. I didn't know that that was basically the only thing that mattered. Well, that's that's the star ranking. But the mm, thing that's so you know, frustrating to me. <laughs> but the but so you can get a one, two, or three, or four star photo of each Pokemon, and they all have their own individual scores. And those scores take into uh, factor their pose, uh, if they're facing the camera, if they're in the center of the camera, uh, things like that. But the you know the actions of the Pokemon dictate what classification using stars uh, mm. the photo goes into yeah i don't like that at all um and <laughs> it's not explained very well wouldn't it be wouldn't it be so much better to classify them using a system of classification that gives names that imply categories weird, like give the categories related theory. to something instead of something that implies value or yeah. evaluation it's yeah weird just, theory it blows uh, my mind <laughs> my hot take uh, they may they might not have tried so hard on their game called New Pokemon <laughs> Snap. I gotta say that's my current working theory uh, that they did it's not, all in the title. Yeah, they didn't have a full team working for years on this game. It uh, says it right probably. on the tin. Yeah. So. The other thing I can't stand about it talking about breaking immersion is that if you replay the same stage, most of the same stuff happens. Uh, yeah. Like you know, I'm, and I'm like, it, how hard would it have been? to do some like basic ai stuff or something and like have them just wander around not be in the same place every time like it's it's the answer is more dan they would have had to do more work to do that (laughs) yeah it's 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 a pretty boring way to do the game yep but you know i don't hate the game it's it it has its moments but yeah it's not it's not game of the year by any means <laughs> no i to me it's just another another case of nintendo crushing potential just mm-hmm. like into the ground of all that potential just evaporated uh there's a bunch of holdovers from the original game that are not necessary um your points about the photography i find very interesting uh that you're doing taking pictures for research could be a justification for uh, different kinds of photos uh that would be that sounds great and is almost believable yeah i know i know that they didn't sit in a room and say like I, we know this is a well, good of photography not. but they're a scientist like right right but like you have literal children telling you like oh i want to see this photo of this thing which like there's so many npcs in this game it boggles my mind Ugh, um so the, the game would be improved in my opinion uh if it weren't on rails uh yes, if the game agreed. didn't uh, hard cut off your ability to take photos when you reached an arbitrary point at the end uh, because that's very frustrating to me when you're trying to take a picture and the level just ends and takes it from you mm-hmm. uh, that's a holdover from the previous are you talking game. about the you're talking about like the level ending versus like yeah. the the number limit uh correct specifically okay. the lever ending so th- so hold on this i i, I know nothing about i'm being game. detailed but yeah, but, the, <laughs> but the so this game that I think the whole point is about exploration and discovery and learning about the Pokemon. Are you telling me this is not an open world game? No, not even a little bit. Well, is no, no, that no, no, not no, no, an no, no, obvious no, 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 choice? No, 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 no. It is not about those things. 
And it's about mm. taking okay. pictures of Pokemon. That's it. But yeah. but why would you do that if not to explore and to learn about the Pokemon? Uh, because they'd have to do more to Alex's point. So far. No, 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 it's, it's, it's about Pokemon are pretty and you get to take pictures uh, of them. I have a slide here that I'm reading from that's sent directly from Nintendo. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just the delivery boy. Um, it's not about exploration. It's not about learning. What it's about, because I played it on stream, so you can even check this. I was so fucking excited at every single Bidoof that I ran into. <laughs> oh my God. Is Bidoof adorable in this game? Like more than like Bidoof's always been adorable, but he is, mm-hmm. but Bidoof is illegally adorable in this game. <laughs> right, but 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 isn't the fun that you found the Bidoof? Because I can just Google pictures of it and look at pictures. <laughs> I don't have to play like, the value in playing a game is finding them, right? <sighs> yeah, so it helps if you just want to look at them. You can just go look at them on the internet <laughs> or on your cards or whatever, yeah, or go yeah. play the actual Pokemon mm, game. I, I do think that that is a major failing of this game is the fact that it's on literally literally Ooh, yeah. on rails not metaphorically like you are in That's a it's like you're in an amusement park ride <laughs> it, yeah, it's a safari ride yeah and i think that the game would have been infinitely better if it was an open world game mm-hmm. like that i i would buy that game in a heartbeat um and i like even i i mean you know Getting beyond the fact that, like, this is teaching children terrible photography skills. Um, <laughs> Forget those violent video games, those bad photography advice right? video games. That's the real honestly, enemy. Though, like, honestly, if I was a parent, I would have more of an issue with, with, with my kid playing this game than I, do with, than I would with them playing any other game. Because I would be sitting there on the couch next to them saying... Okay, so that's how the game wants you to take the photo, but it would be way cooler if you were like angled this way with the Pokemon off on this side of the frame. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Absolutely. and I would I I would be the most annoying backseat gamer in the world. Um, but right. like, yeah, no, it's 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 a it's it's not even that it's a boring game; it's a boring concept. Like, it's not even like they screwed up the concept. I think they they nailed the they nailed the game based on the concept. It's that the, the base <laughs> concept is bad. Like, it's just not... Like, I don't know how they were sitting in a, in a boardroom saying, like, what if we just sat them in an amusement park ride and handed them a camera and, like, the Pokemon did the same thing every time so we don't have to do any work, like, and, yeah. and just let them go. And and somebody was like, yeah, that's great. Let me let me respond to that by saying I, I love Pokemon. I have always, and as much as I try and get away from it, I can't. I really love Pokemon. Uh, the world of it, the creative potential is unbelievable. Not dissimilar to things that I like about Dungeons and Dragons. Like there is so much to discover. The idea of a Pokemon, you know, safari style game uh, is an incre- is an incredibly attractive one. But any Pokemon game outside of the main series is an attractive idea to me. Like I want to discover more of this world. Uh, in a way that's different from, you know, being a 10-year-old who goes on a dangerous mission to uh, fight adults to become champion of the planet. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't actually want to do that anymore. We've done that eight times. I did it when I was a kid. And I want to know more about the Pokemon's intentions. Like, honestly, this I want to know more about the world. And Pokemon Snap is an opportunity for that. And unfortunately, 
their my goals don't line up with theirs. Like the world that they show in Pokemon Snap is a world of arbitrary mechanics to make this game work in a way that they want it to work. But you know, the flowers that glow and the types of you know science they're or the the, the machines and mechanisms they're using are all made up for this game. I've mm-hmm. never seen these before. They don't exist inside this world. And that's immersion breaking for me. And it's disappointing because they trapped me as a child uh, <laughs> with their Game Boy games and made me fall in love with it. And now I have to live with that curse the rest of my life uh, to continuously disappointing uh, follow-ups. Um, but all that is to say, this game's better than the first one. True. And... It is a peek into the Pokemon world that I want to see, even if it's not perfect. It does offer, you know, unique ways to see Pokemon that aren't just battling, like, you know, how Pokemon interact with each other and play and eat grass. Yeah, like that's that's cool. what I was going to bring up. Like that that is the the main thing I like about this game is that you get to see Pokemon interacting with each other in interesting ways that like you don't get to see in in a in a Game Boy whatever, you know, Nintendo DS or whatever we're talking about mm-hmm. Switch game. Um and that is very interesting. Like I, I, I love watching that, and I want more of that. Just make a freaking open world game, like or just I put would time pay into your game. So much money, I'd pay so much. Just money. put more effort. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot, like, and and they are coming out with that supposedly. Uh, there is the the Pokemon Legends game mm-hmm. that's coming out that's taking place in like the pat in the ancient history of pokemon mm. with medieval pokeballs that will be you in like this open world where pokemon will just be in the open world and battles don't trigger they're just out there and mm-hmm. i don't know, know all the de- i don't know if we have any more details than that but we're getting something and you know i will assume that this game is just uh, the promise of something out again <laughs> another promise of something that it is less than what i want it to be but you know i'm gonna end up buying it on that you know just that glint of hope it's like maybe we could finally go in no maybe maybe i i think it is worth pointing out though that this you know them inventing something for the to make this game work is nothing new um like we shouldn't be surprised by this oh but it's still dumb and embarrassing oh for sure for sure um but like i've i've literally been thinking about this since i was a child when we got generation (laughs) two and I sat there as a literal child thinking, <laughs> how did we not know about these Pokemon in Kanto? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's like, a great point. Like, you're, you're telling me that this entire other region of the world exists and nobody thought <laughs> to mention it in the entire Pokemon Red, Blue, and Yellow? Like, and, and the show. It's like, there's the 150 show. <laughs> Pokemon in the world. I was like, oh, wait, we missed 100 on across the water that's my bad sorry and it's not even like they're set like they didn't even have the decency to separate those two regions in any meaningful way because all of generation not all of them but a lot of generation one pokemon are available in the generation two regions they're a train right away right like if if there was some train right away (laughs) if there was some in-game reason for those two generations of pokemon not being able to cross over i could i could get behind it but there's not there's not. There's no. not. It's just yeah. It's just lazy storytelling. That's the legacy of Pokemon. Yep. Yeah. That's that's what it is. There's this is something else that I was thinking as you know as I was actually talking last night to uh to to uh to people that enjoyed this game. Um, would you call this new Pokemon Snap? W- would you classify it as a collectathon? 
Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird collectathon. Right. Uh, but I, th- I think it I think it hits all the bases. You're not collecting, you know, in-game trophies or objects, but you are absolutely looking for things and filling lists of yeah, you're collecting these photos. Yeah, I would absolutely do yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind of different because, like, you know, there there's a little bit of, like, I guess there's some skill in collecting the items because, you know, getting the photo, there's, like, there's, you know, there's some skill involved in there. And we, we can talk about, like, whether the whether the much, merits of that skill are, uh, I don't it's know literally much... more complicated than just walking up to an item and pressing A. But yes. um, I, I know it's not much more than that. But well, anyway, that's that's but not really actually, my but point. You don't have to walk up to it. You just press A. Well, so it's on. actually well, a lot easier. <laughs> Collectibles work like that in other games, though. Like collectibles can be hidden or behind like little puzzles. Sure. Uh, so that's absolutely. I, I think the comparison is pretty pretty much dead on. Right. Absolutely. So like so my I guess my point is like is this the only collectathon we can think of that's so on rails? Like this I'm is the to... true. This is the only collectathon <laughs> in the world. Like, actually, there's no others. Like, like I'm actually wondering. Like, does does that make it the best collectathon? Does it make it the worst collectathon? <laughs> I, so I think the <laughs> question, the, the interesting thing I'm thinking of is also that in a lot of other games that where I'm thinking about collectibles, I, I mean, I'm sure there must be other games where the collectibles are like the only thing. They're like the main point. But is there another game where it's where it's literally the only thing? Like, you can't do anything but collect. Because, like, that's what this game is, is you literally sit in a car on rails and you all you can do is collect the things. There's no exploration. There's no other skill involved. You you point the camera the right way and you click A. So there were a, there were a slew of games, like, especially in the PlayStation 2 era, that were built around this concept. Perhaps one of the most um, endearing... Um, enduring ones that has a cult following today is spongebob battle for bikini bottom (laughs) is like what i was thinking of uh when i was thinking about this pokemon snap game and in this uh in in this game which uh, which a lot of people really love all you do in the game is you run around and collect things now it is it's more of an open world game because there are uh, I mean, the, it's kind of it's like open world in, in in as much as they could do at the time, which is like there are there are levels that you go through that are pretty linear, but you can move back and forth through them. And there's like, you know, there, there's like this uh, there's like this overworld and it's like walk throughable level select. It's a kind hub. Of thing. It has a hub. Yeah. Like it, it has a hub, I guess, is the yeah, it's like the is, and is it, like the way. And it I is an say. action adventure game for all intents and purposes. <laughs> like it's it's not turn based combat. Uh, you do right. fight enemies in real time, uh, and you travel through various different <laughs> it's true, worlds. Yeah, um, like because that's the difference between you know SpongeBob, Banjo Kazooie, Donkey Kong sixty four, all those, all these classic collectathon games, and Pokemon Snap, is that the collectibles exist within a world that has real time. Uh, action and adventure elements where you're fighting enemies even and often even bosses like the uh the 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 book the bookends of each chapter uh have nothing to do with collectibles they have to do with you know bosses and enemies and the world itself sure, yeah. not the collectibles um now those are what we have been calling collectathons for so long uh Naria, is there a game that is removing all that and just collectibles mm-hmm. Uh, the only other one that I could think of outside of the Pokemon Snap franchise is uh, The Witness, honestly. 
Uh, and even that's like mm. mostly a puzzle game. But yeah. if you take out the idea that you have to solve puzzles, then that's strictly a collectathon, I think. Like that would be strictly a collectathon. But you take right. out the surprise, whole game. surprise. <laughs> right. If you remove everything, every reason why I enjoy the game, then you have then you get Pokemon Snap, right? <laughs> like, Pokemon so, Snap so, no, so actually I, better than Pokemon Snap because you can walk around. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. No, I'm feel I'm feeling more convinced by this that actually maybe Pokemon Snap is the epitome of the collectathon. <laughs> it might be. Yeah. Which is a hilarious concept to me. Yeah, there, there's some interesting things they've added i don't know if you've all run into any of these and or tony you haven't played right but alex i don't know if you've run into this um probably not because they're so obscure and this is uh it kind of pisses me off because they're like i'm so i I love easter eggs when they're good Mm -hmm. but uh i get frustrated by them when when it's the type of easter egg where like i would never know about this unless somebody on the internet told me Mm -hmm. and pokemon snap is as from what i've seen full of these i need an example so the one that comes to mind is and maybe easter egg is the wrong word but like i don't know if I, I can't think I, yeah I, not vanity. well that's yeah because it's not a reference that's why i'm struggling to come up with it but you, you'll under, i think you'll understand what i mean when i describe it which is like okay there's certain things you can do to, to cause reactions in the pokemon or cause the pokemon to do things but they're just so obscure so like one of them is uh, among other things that happen in the first uh, Illumina Pokemon with the M- Meganium, mm-hmm. uh, you have to do a few things. I forget what they are leading up to it, but like the last thing you have to do is like throw five of the apples at a tree. You can't do six because that's too many. And then like certain, if if three birds fly out of the tree, like the Meganium will do something special. How do you feel about though that that aspect of the game, like the fact that it's so hidden and like is that just pointless or like no no. no. This, this is an interesting topic, and we haven't covered it in a while, but we have talked about things, in my opinion, this is related to the idea of um, puzzle, I'm going to call it puzzles hidden in the machine, mm-hmm. uh, quotation marks around the machine, uh, the machine being the internet. Uh, popularizing this idea, in my from my point of view, is the Five Nights at Freddy series, where in order to get the good ending or true ending in some of those games, you need to know things or do things that make basically no sense where you need a literal AI or literally hundreds of thousands of people stress testing the thing in order to find the thing. But it's an interesting idea that, you know, out of a hundred thousand people that are stress testing it, one person will find it. Uh, And that's, kind of interesting and depending on what the solution is maybe it's actually kind of cool maybe it is just a really smart puzzle who knows it depends um <laughs> but what you're as you're explaining it to me i don't know how this works in the new pokemon snap game but as you're explaining to me it sounds like there are justifiable but relatively arbitrary sequences of events that can make unique things occur easter easter eggs i'm happy calling them uh and in the context of an easter egg I can't have a problem with it. If it's not necessary to progression, then it's an opportunity for that one in 100,000 people to discover it. And then that'll be a really cool uh, thing for them. Now, progression, I need to clarify, um, there is, I, it does not include, it, it has to be something that has left off any checklist that the game has, which is achievements or like things the Pokemon can do, the stars, or even points. Like it has to be, uh, completely 
uh, irrelevant to any goal setting in the game. Uh, at that point, I can't care about it. If you put it in the game, it's strictly more detail for you to discover and share with your friends if you discover it. Um, but as soon as it becomes something that's on a checklist and you make it basically impossible to discover, yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. It's annoying. Um, some games can be built on this idea and the scaling of difficulty for people is going to be different depending on, you know, if you think you can figure these things out. Uh, Oberdin, we've talked about, did the nice thing of having multiple solutions to one question. So you can have obscure answers, but those are all fine because it's not looking for every possible answer to a question. It's looking for any one answer to the question and then gives you that complete check mark. So that's, I don't know if I, I, I feel like I answered your question in there. How do you feel about my answer? Yeah, I, I think so. And now, now I'm sorry, I, I sort of, I don't know if drifted off is the right word, but I started thinking about uh, optimization fine. versus player choice again. Oh, perfect. We did it. <laughs> Roll it back. And I'm thinking now, did they just knock that out of the park with this game? Because you can choose to face any direction you want. You can choose to face any, <laughs> take any picture you want, or you can choose to play optimally and discover these hidden secret Pokemon and get, or not secret Pokemon, but like secret poses and stuff. And those are, as far as I know, anytime you discover one of these things, it's like an automatic four-star photo. Um, sure. So, like, is that the difference between player choice and optimization? <laughs> Which is not a quality judgment. Which is not a quality judgment. Stars. Question, there are other ways to get those four-star photos, I assume? Not just these I honestly these don't know for some yeah. of them. It's hard to know, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, for the Meganium one, I think that is actually maybe the only way to get a four-star photo. I don't know for sure. Oh, well, in that case, f*** that, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know. I could be totally wrong there. I've, I have no idea. Is this the perfect uh, solution to this kind of thing, like uh, answering the question of optimization versus player choice? Uh, uh, it, it's, it's a good answer. I don't even think it's that difficult of an answer. Uh, the way I think about it is it's a detail. And the more detail you add to the game, the more rewarding your game is incrementally. Like, sort of, sort of thinking about it from, like, an expected value point of view, the game is now more rewarding to a small number of people that will be able to dis discover this thing on their own. Uh, but for those few people, uh, they're going to be really excited by that. <laughs> and now your game is going to be incrementally that much more popular. And every time you add a detail, it'll incrementally increase. Oh, someone's going to discover this detail or that detail. And it just you kind of can push uh, your little meter for how popular a game can be up and up and up with uh, adding that detail. Now, detail is balanced against, you know, the, your fundamental game mechanics, uh, which is where I feel like the game, you can have a lot of conversation about that. Um, but this kind of detail work. It's not even in my in my opinion, it's not even necessarily hard, but it does strictly take more time to do. Yeah. Which which I think is on purpose, right? Like Nintendo wanted to put out a game that wasn't hard. You can't lose Pokemon Snap. Like you you if you don't do well on a level, you just go back and do it again and the Pokemon right. all do the same stuff and you you try again. And that is that true. I meant I meant hard to design, but yeah, oh, I see. this is also true. <laughs> Yeah, this kind of detail where you just you just have to look at a moment and see it as an opportunity. It's like, oh, what if 
something were to happen here and we acknowledge that like Hades is filled with all that detail work mm-hmm. to the brim which is one of the reasons why it's so broadly satisfying to play doing that much detail work is very difficult like the just the more detail you add the more work it is and you know if you don't add it then you are not working very hard to make your game very appealing is how mm-hmm. i feel about this is and, and not even how i feel that's how i think this works uh, Papers, Please is appealing to me partially because of the, of the character Georgie. He's a great character. He's very appealing. And they didn't have to add him. But they did, <laughs> and it's great. I guess the question for me is, and this is not something I think that we can answer um, in any concrete sense, but like, watch me. Um, what's the <laughs> obligation of, and, and I, I want to talk about Returnal before we run out of time, so I'm just sure. going to put yep. that out there. Um, but like, what's the obligation of... Uh, discoverability in this detail like i i i'm i'm inclined to put a lot less value on the uh on on the amount of value a detail adds to the game if it become if it's incredibly undiscoverable like if it's in that sort of thing like dan was originally talking about where like you have to go through this series of you know you have to almost punch in this cheat code to be able to get it it's like okay that can enrich the experience but if it's so undiscoverable that almost no players are going to find it organically um i i guess subjectively to me that that has a lot less value versus georgie uh is not missable he's an amazing detail in that game that enriches the environment enriches the story but he's not missable so like that's kind of the the other end of that spectrum for me that it's a great point to bring up like georgie's it's it's honestly not even fair to, for me to call georgie a detail like he's a pretty relevant uh aspect of the game he just has an interesting character that was written so it's really just good writing um but it, there's there's a there's a correlation uh cool correlation thing happening here where the more missable uh, assuming this easter egg i'll call it is entirely not required uh for objectives in the game the more missable this Easter egg is, the less people will find it, yes, but the more rewarding, in general, it will be when those players find it. So that's the balance you strike. Like, you want really hard to find details that are going to be really cool. Um, it's a news topic. I forget what game it was, but there was a, a secret found in an N64 game found like this or last year. That was a news topic. That was crazy. People's minds blew that this was a hidden thing. It's a big deal. But no one found it. So what value is it adding? Nothing until someone finds it. And the internet provides yeah. an outlet to share that, which is cool. Yeah, actually, similarly in The Last of Us, there was a new Easter egg that was found oh, in the, the original game. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, like in the past year, this game's like, what, seven, six, seven years old now. And uh, somebody... Eight years? 2013? 14? Yeah, eight years, eight years yep. old now, and there's this Easter egg that somebody. There's a lot of people in the community that focus on this game, and it was just discovered. Um, yeah, that was so. So, really so you need cool. a balance. and they went back and unpatched. They went back and unpatched the game and made sure that it wasn't added in a patch later, and it wasn't. Oh. It was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you need to you need a balance. Like I think it's good to have those kinds of things. It makes your game kind of last longer if that because the more people play your game, the more likely it'll be found eventually and the internet allows that to be shared. But you also need your game to be popular or in the meantime. <laughs> like you need to yeah. give uh right you need to help people uh during the journey on the way to that point. So uh 
I want to, we only have a few minutes left and I wanted to give some quick first impressions uh, of Returnal Mm -hmm. because, uh, so Returnal is a game that just came out in the past uh, week or so. Uh, It's a PlayStation 5 exclusive and it's a, uh, it's, it's a third person combat uh, roguelike game. Mm -hmm. The frame story is that uh, you're this solitary um, scout for some kind of interplanetary space organization. You know, you're supposed to go around and uh, investigate new planets and collect data. Uh, something goes wrong with your ship. You crash land on this planet uh, and you find that you find yourself cut off from the rest of your organization. Uh, your ship is inoperable and um, the this planet, uh, you're... You have to try to fight your way, at least in the beginning of the game, you're told you have to fight your way towards the source of a signal that can reconnect you with your group. Uh, But you're fighting through the ruins of this civilization. There was formerly a civilization on this planet that um, that, that was overtaken by this hostile fauna, as as she calls them. And so uh, that's so that's the core gameplay loop. You start at your ship. And you have to fight your way through these levels and you're trying to, at least in my first few hours of playing the game, I'm trying to reach the signal point. Uh, There are various barriers in the way. Um, The levels are, it doesn't seem like they're randomly generated. I think there's a set, there's a big set of levels, but they're scrambled every time. You have a different, they're plugged into each other in a different order every time. So you have Mm -hmm. a different path um, every time. Um, you need resources to go through your journey. Um, most of your resources don't persist through, uh, and every time you die, you go back to the crash site and you have to start over mm-hmm. and the, the levels change. Uh, most of your resources don't persist, although uh, just, there are a couple of things that do, um, that are like key items to your character. And as far as like unlocking more traversal and more things that you can get from each level. So even though the levels are defined, there's lots of things when you're first playing that you can't access, but then you can, you gain the ability to access them. The more runs that you do. Oh, uh, okay. So there is progression through each right. iteration. Right. There is, there is some progression. I, I, f- I find the game very interesting. I find it very fun. I find, the story at this point, at the beginning of the game, is very mysterious, but in a way that I find compelling. Uh, it gives little. It does this thing that I re- that I respond to so well, where it gives these little crumbs of information about what the bigger picture is, but doesn't piece them together in a way that mm. makes sense. And so I I'm motivated as a player to try to find out how all these pieces connect and like what's you know what's really going on here. Um, you know it's. Portal's the original example I go back to of like you know what I found so the compelling crumbs, about yeah. that game, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm 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 motivated by the story of this roguelike, and I think I'm going to keep playing it. And it reminds me like like I haven't had the opportunity to play Hades yet, but um, a lot of the <laughs> mechanics of the uh, no one's gifted it to me. It's been on my wish list. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, but um, uh, details in the Discord. But uh, yeah, I've watched Hades a lot, and I think that there's a lot of similarities between these games. And so I would say generally, if you are a uh, if if you were a fan of Hades, it's likely that you would like this game. And it makes me more interested in wanting to try Hades. I wonder how much I would like it. I'm going to throw a wrench in what you just said and yes. say I was a huge fan of Hades, and I don't love this game. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize okay. you played it too. Yeah, I've I've 
logged probably about two hours on it now. I've, I played a bunch this morning also in, over the course of the last week. Um, and I think there's a lot of really amazing things in this game. Uh, what I don't like about it, though, is that actually some of the things that Tony does like about it, which is that it's a little <laughs> too mysterious for me. Uh, and I'm doing the same stuff over and over. Like, I don't mind mysterious when I'm progressing through levels and, like, I'm slowly gathering information and stuff like that. But for me, if I'm going to be doing the same things over and over again, I I want it to feel a little more rewarding than this does. I feel like I'm not getting a whole lot out of repeating the same levels. So you feel like Hades struck a better balance with that. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to... I don't know. I feel I feel like not knowing where to go in a roguelike isn't something I enjoy. It's an, it's interesting. It's not a problem I've encountered before, I think. Yeah, like like I had that problem this morning where I was wandering around the map for like 15 minutes and I was like I've been to this room. I've been to the, like I don't know where the next room is. And then I walked into the next room and like died and then I had to go do it again. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't I don't enjoy this. <laughs> like I, I I like a game like Hades or Slay the Spire where like Figuring out where to go next isn't the issue. It's more about the skill I have at the game. Um, whereas this one would be, I, I, this, if this game were an like an open world action adventure, or not even open world, but like if this were just like an action adventure game where like it's a fairly linear linear story, not repeating the same thing over again, it might be one of my favorite games. I think it has all the makings of that. I think like all, all like the graphics are phenomenal. I think the 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 haptics and the controller are really cool. All um, the haptics are so cool, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, um, I, I like everything about the controls. I I honestly love the five players, right? <laughs> I, I but I but I really like everything about this game, except for the core gameplay mechanic, <laughs> which is really frustrating well, to me. So I I want to say that. This is the most open world I can imagine a roguelike being because you can travel all the way back for mm-hmm. every room that you've unlocked. You have full freedom to go back and forth through all of the world that you've unlocked in that run. And sometimes, uh, I haven't found it very often so far, but sometimes you have to. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, but also if you want to choose to play more optimally, if you come across a resource in a room you can't pick up, because your inventory's full or because it's not smart to pick it up then or whatever, you can keep progressing. And then if you really want that resource, you can go back and get it and then yeah. go back and keep progressing. I think that's really interesting how you can define that pathing. Yeah, I, I think I misspoke when I said open world. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, I actually would enjoy this game more if maybe it was a little more linear or I, I th- it's just it's just the starting over that that is frustrating to me. Like and 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 it's not a problem I have with Hades because it I feel like it did a That's really so good job of rewarding me for these runs and and like you know going back was in and of itself rewarding because there were new dialogue options and there were different like different uh like not uh what do you call them not collectibles but like artifacts or whatever that like i might have gotten yeah because like that's the feeling i get with slay the slay the spire the Mm -hmm. like whole like oh you go back and i'm like oh i feel like i've just 
you know, I don't feel rewarded. I feel like I've just lost all my progress and mm-hmm. I don't feel that as much in this game. So mm-hmm. uh, this is super interesting. We should come back to it another yeah. time. Um, I just want to say a couple more things about the the haptics. Uh, there's just <laughs> um, amazing level of detail that you can feel in the different environments that you are. It's really, it's really freaking cool. And they do a new thing with the adaptive triggers on the controller where uh, each weapon you use has two modes. And instead of binding two different buttons or like having to hit a button to switch modes, the uh, the aim button, the trigger has a stop. And so when you pull it down to the stop, it aims. And when you pull it further, it switches the gun to the other mode and aims. So without having to hit another button to switch, you can switch between the two modes on your weapon uh, as you're firing. And that was also so cool to me that like, you know, I'm playing this game with this piece of hardware that's has this controller interaction I've never had before mm-hmm. um, and can make the, uh, you know, has a mechanical benefit because you can switch back and forth between these modes uh, easier and faster. Um, so so that's one of the things I like about it. And also, like, it's, you know, it's, it's also, like, uh, reasons why I think it's cool that it is a PS5 exclusive because they are making use of the hardware in ways that... Um, you know, there's there's value that would be lost if you didn't have that, uh, you know, you didn't have the uh, you weren't getting the experience through the hardware. Um, I'm looking forward to playing it with the 3D audio. Uh, I don't get that when I'm streaming, so I have to play on my own to get the 3D audio. But um, I'm looking forward to playing it with that because they even <laughs> say in the beginning there's like, you know, you should you should play with headphones because there's a lot we're doing with the audio. And that's really cool. <laughs> so so um, I look forward to trying that. Uh but yeah, I think I think next time we should, uh, uh, if we want to play some more of this, uh, we should have a whole conversation about roguelikes because I think there's. Uh, I'm ready. Maybe maybe it's uh, maybe it's more maybe it's more varied than I initially thought. Speaking of exclusivity, check out our full coverage of the Epic vs. Apple trial on the next episode of the Pixel Noise podcast. Oh my god, that we're totally going to cover on the next episode of the Pixel Noise podcast. Pixel Noise let's, promise. Let's let's get some let's let's get some more news and some more. Like I'd like to take a I'd like to take a zoomed out view of that before having a whole conversation about it. So I think that's for the best. Well, yeah, and at that point, it'll we probably need to wait like two months to talk about it at that point. 